This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 198. I have the wonderful Barbara Fries with me today, uh, who is uh, an incredible woman who has written amazing books and I can't wait to tell you about them in just a little minute. Uh, but I have a couple of things to mention before we kick into that. Uh, number one is a huge welcome to all of our new Lotox Club members. You can join the club via lotoxlife.com. Click the explore tab and join the club is the very first option there. And uh, it is only $49 a year, you guys. And that's Australian. So for Americans, that's like 30 bucks. And uh, Europeans, I think it's about 28 euro. So it's nice and low. And the reason is I don't want a few people in an expensive membership and us not having the sense that we're creating change. I want tons of people to be able to interact, join like minds. And the beautiful thing about that private Facebook group that comes with your club membership, along with a bunch of other goodies, is the fact that we don't have any trolls. We literally have a group of people who actually want to be there and and respectfully and uh, you know, happily discuss empowering topics around leading a low-tox life. And it's everything from, you know, hey, guys, I'm trying to find a plastic-free mop to uh, does anyone know um, what the best test to ask for from their pediatrician to uh, has anyone found a really good brand of wraps that's additive-free to, you know, you, you name it. It could be anything. We talk about mould. We had incredible exclusive for the clubs la- club last week with a Q&A with a wonderful building biologist and she covered everything from how often you need to service your aircon systems, depending on which aircon systems they are, condensation, what causes it, what windows are best, what shutters are best, uh, what to look for when buying a house, what's fixable and what would you just not go near, uh, all sorts of questions uh, related to building biology. So that was great. And we do those every month. There's a, um, a Q&A of some form with an expert uh, and with myself and uh, 50% off all of the Lotox courses, which is a great sweet deal. And uh, what else is a part of the club? Hmm. Oh, of course, the Lotox Club member dashboard. So this month we are focusing in on the immune system and making sure we get ours in tip-top shape. This virus is not going anywhere. And uh, rather than sitting at home alone in the dark, doing no exercise and eating potato chips and ice cream because the world sucks and I'm just going to emotionally eat my way through this, a uh, better idea is to actually create a, a, a radical mission of self-care right now and get ourselves into the best shape possible because what we do know so far is that certain cofactors can really uh, disturb your chances of this being a mild illness for you and make it quite severe. We can see that through when someone is obese. We can see that if uh, there are pre-existing conditions uh, around heart and lung. And uh, we have started to see 
that certain nutrient levels uh, and good nutrient levels of particular key nutrients help people fare better when they do get it. And uh, I think that's an amazing piece of empowering information. All of it is actually. We can actually make our health as good as it could possibly be right now, get our immune system functioning strong, and then... um, you know, we, we're not just waiting and hoping we don't get it. We're being proactive. And I think that is a really important mental health piece to this as well, while it, uh, you know, it just doesn't look like it's going away soon. So uh, there, there are some huge mental health ramifications around that. And what if we could actually start to treat this as an opportunity to look after ourselves as best as possible? So I'm really inspired by the topic of the immune system and helping it function as best it can, identifying key nutrients that it needs. So we've put together a 44-page ebook to support you with the help of the wonderful naturopath on my team, Steph Hinton. And, um, And it's just a really great month. And so every month you have a fantastic new uh, little circle in your club dashboard and you click on it and you see the month's topic and there's a video from me, a self-care exercise, and then the ebook that you download that has all the goodness for that topic that month. And then we do like a bit of a chat in the group to bring it to life and all sorts. So I really love the club and it's beautiful to see lots of club members enjoying themselves in there and finding a really safe, supportive space in a crazy time. And I would love to see you there too. So you head to the explore tab on lowtoxlife.com and you'll see that it's the very first option there. And uh, that's all I have to say about the club. Now I have to mention our wonderful show supporters this month. We have the Natural Betting Company who are continuing through the whole of August uh, and you have 10% off latex mattresses and latex pillows. So obviously when something is a bit of a bigger ticket item, uh, that 10% off can represent, you know, 100 or $200 and that's huge, you know, that's significant. That's a week of groceries. So LotoxNBC is your code and their website is thenaturalbeddingcompany.com.au. Now, they don't just have mattresses and pillows, even though that's what your discount applies to. They have gorgeous bed linen, uh, wool pillows, wool quilts. Uh, They make bespoke bed frames. um, And so there's a ton of fabulous stuff there. A local Sydney business, they've been going for over 35 years and really are trusted and use only the best quality organic and sustainable materials. Uh, And uh, I can tell you, very comfortable and a wonderful night's sleep will result. So enjoy that discount if that's something you're in the market for right now. Now let's talk about Barbara Fries. So Barbara is the author of Cole, A Human Story, uh, A Human Story, <laughs> A Human History, sorry, Barbara, uh, which was a New York Times notable book. And she is an environmental attorney and a former Minnesota assistant attorney general. That is not easy to say fast, just saying. So her interest in corporate denial was sparked by cross-examining coal industry witnesses disputing the science of climate change. And uh, while she was doing that, they were pushing back, denying facts, obviously denying facts that threatened their bottom line. Uh, And these interactions in the courtroom over time formed the idea for her deeply researched new book, 
industrial strength denial. And boy, is this a doozy. So it looks at corporate denial through eight powerful and infuriating case studies. Trust me, you're just like, ah, how did this get to go on for so long? Um, and uh, so she's a longtime analyst of environmental policy and she really showcases the campaigns of denial from businesses in the production of lead gasoline, tobacco. Uh, we talk about radium as well, which was really fascinating. And uh, I guess what I like about this book especially is that it delves into how society has fought back against corporate lies using tools of democracy like boycotts, government intervention, advocacy, medical, uh, media scrutiny. And, uh, and I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle, like just sharing how terrible certain corporates are is one thing, but really starting to act and to show to trust that action will lead to something is incredibly important for us to regain our faith in. Sometimes you think, oh my gosh, there's just so much wrong with the world. Like what could I possibly do? But we can always do something, even if it's as simple as a product boycott from our own shopping carts. We are always in the driver's seat. I'm such a big believer in that. You guys know that I share and promote that often and uh, and we need that. We need that for our human spirit to stay positive overall. And, uh, and so I really love that Barbara uses this book not just to um, be an expose but also to be a story of perseverance and hope. Uh, so I know you guys are going to enjoy this chat and I don't want to leave it a minute longer before hooking into it. So I look forward to hearing how you enjoyed it, which aspect really got your fire going. Uh, I, I actually can't pick. I loved it all. So enjoy this conversation with uh, Barbara Fries. Hello, Barbara. How are you? Hello, Alex. I'm fine. How are you? I'm very well. And I am really excited to talk to you. And I, I'm trying to figure out why I've got such a big smile on my face for such a heavy, hard hitting book. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is just that, that, that inner me that really believes that we can uncover the badness and unite together and make it change. And, um, and I think I, I agree with that. Yeah. And I think this is what you deliver. Uh, and uh, it's sometimes really hard to learn the truth and it can shock and it can make you angry. It can make you think, oh my gosh, what have I been doing all these past years with the thing I used that turns out it had lead in it or whatever. Um, but uh, this for me really is about learning what we need to learn to put the fire in the belly, to get an action plan together, to move forward in a better way, right? Yeah, I like the idea of action. Knowledge leads to action and effective action, hopefully. Yeah. So maybe I might start with asking you what led you to be passionate about environmental causes and choose environmental law as a young lawyer. Sure. Um, You know, I think it actually goes back to my childhood. I was a kid when the first Earth Day came along in 1970. 
and I got kind of swept up in all of the issues that people were concerned about and, and also in the optimistic notion that if we passed laws, we could really deal with those issues. And, um, and then, you know, a few years later, 1973, we had the first energy crisis. And this, you know, really did sort of hit me fairly hard, even as a kid. You know, I, I've joked that if my junior high had had a contest for who would be most likely to grow up and write a book about environmental issues or become an environmental lawyer, I think I probably would have uh, won that, that particular contest. Um, you know, and I, and I don't want to suggest that I was a super serious or super neurotic kid, but I really did focus on these issues quite a lot. And part of it, I think, might have had to do with the fact that my dad was in the chemical business. Right. He, he actually made chemicals and he helped me understand how particularly potent they can be. And, um, and, and also because he was in the industry, I think I took a somewhat more systemic look at the whole idea of pollution. It wasn't just a, a morally bad thing that we should avoid, you know, doing. It was something that if you if you had a company and you wanted to do the right thing and use clean technology, that would cost more. And then the company that didn't bother to use clean technology would outcompete you in the marketplace. And so it became really obvious to me, even as a kid, that you'd have to have laws in place. So everybody uh, avoids the pollution and you've leveled the playing field. Um, so I, I guess maybe then it's not such a big surprise that I would grow up to want to enforce those laws. Yeah, absolutely. And was it devastating to you as an early adult to realize how many laws were being bent, broken, ignored? And, and how many more laws there needed to be. I mean, that, that oh, was part absolutely. of it. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, was, it was certainly an issue and it was certainly kind of frustrating. Um, but, you know, as I enforced the laws for the state of Minnesota, which was my first job out of law school um, as, a, as an assistant attorney general, um, you know, I, I realized that most people were trying, in fact, to comply with the laws. And so, so I think that was encouraging. And, and it wasn't like I felt it was me against all of industry. Mm, okay, that's good. <laughs> that would have been a bit tough. <laughs> that um, would have been hard, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what events led you to want to write your well-known book, Coal, A Human History? Because obviously you had been a lawyer for some time by that point and uh, you know, some people can just go on in their career, fighting the fight. What made you think, no, I need to put this out for the world to see? Well, I had been uh, part of a proceeding uh, that we held in Minnesota, where my home state of Minnesota, uh, and, and we were trying to basically figure out just how bad is it for the environment when we burn coal to make electricity because we relied a lot on, on coal. We didn't mine any coal in Minnesota, we imported it all, but we relied on it a lot, like much of the United States, especially back then, uh, and, and like Australia. Um, and so we were trying to estimate what are the costs, and among the costs we looked at uh, was climate change. And, and that struck a nerve with the coal industry, and they sent to Minnesota all kinds of, um, scientists, witnesses to testify and explain to us that 
we didn't have to worry about climate change and it wasn't going to happen. And if it did happen, we'd like it. And all of those scientists that the rest of the world was relying on, that they were basically biased, either politically biased or somehow financially biased. It was, it was kind of vague, but it was clear that we were you know, being encouraged to ignore them. And I found this all just so astonishing. And, and I, I remember at the time thinking, I know coal has this amazing history and I wanted to know more about it. And I looked for a book to, to learn from, to read about that history. And that book didn't exist. And I had, you know, in addition to wanting to be a lawyer, I had always also wanted to be a writer. Uh, and in the past, I hadn't really felt like I had that much to, to write about. I hadn't, didn't have that much to say. But now suddenly seeing uh, the coal industry and its influence on our policy behind the scenes, because people were not aware of all, at all about the coal industry. People sort of had forgotten we even burned it in the mid-90s. And so I ended up uh, having a lot to say and decided to, to, to write that book and ultimately left my job at the AG's office to, to finish it. And... Um, and took a, a new path. Wow. And what do you feel that you would like people to most know about the coal industry that you feel doesn't get talked about enough? What are we missing? Why, why do they still have such a powerful hold over everything? Well, I think they, uh, partly a part of their power was simply their invisibility. And I think that is still the case that the fact that we don't burn coal in our homes anymore, we don't put it into our cars, we burn it in these power plants. And so people aren't even aware of it as a, as a daily part of our lives. Um, and that the industry behind the scenes would have just this tremendous political power to mainly prevent us from taking climate change seriously. I mean, that has been their power. Now, I should say that in the years since coal, certainly in the United States, has uh, shrunk dramatically in terms of how much of it we burn. Um, the industry, the coal, the coal uh, mining industry itself has had enormous financial problems. Um, it's kind of strange because they keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And yet now, of course, they've got a, a president in, in Donald Trump who has been uh, championing their literally cars. lit their fire again. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. And you know, standing in front of them with his coal mining hat on and his pick and, and talking about bringing back clean, beautiful coal. He's completely to do that, but I think he has given coal miners and coal mining communities false hope that there is going to be a future for them instead of helping them, you know, transition into a future that's more realistic and sustainable. Mm. And I think this is what I find the scariest about leaders who choose to uh, buddy up, if you like. And this is through no fault of any coal mining worker out there. Absolutely not. But it gives false hope because it is not the way the world is going and it is not the way the world can go. So the sooner we actually start to buddy up in a new way, which is to retrain, transition, uh, then that's what being a real buddy is. It's being realistic about where we're headed and how we're going to help everyone get there. Yeah, I completely agree. Mm. And um, in, in doing your research for that book, before we move uh, on a little bit to your more recent work, I'm curious to know, uh, in terms of exploring alternative fuels, we know that 
a fossil fuel, whatever form it is in, um, is great for heat, for example, uh, and efficient for heat in a way. Um, and uh, renewables are um, great for other types of uh, electrical needs. Um, I'm just curious to see what you found when you were doing all your research around methane. There are some really interesting debates happening at the moment about, well, what if we did transition every car to electric? Where would all of the metals uh, and lithium come from for, for that exercise? It's just a really interesting time where I don't think anything is actually black and white and we need to be looking at everything. And I'm curious to see what you found. Right. Well, there are certainly going to be some hard choices to make, but there are also some real no-brainer things to do. I think there's a pretty broad consensus now that the way to address this is to uh, try to basically electrify as many things as we can in the economy um, and then to um, basically take care of that electric demand with as many clean technologies as possible. And of course, that does also involve some kind of battery or storage power to go with wind and solar and whatnot. The exciting thing is to see how the costs of those clean technologies have been just plummeting over the years. And that has been, of course, driving their their growth. So there really is a lot of reason to be hopeful. And, and as somebody who's worked on this issue now for a quarter century. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really have seen so much change and it makes it just so much easier now to talk about a, a post-fossil fuel world because the, the technology has advanced. There will be issues in terms of sourcing, in terms of metals and whatnot, um, but but I think those are not nearly as challenging as how, how to, uh, well, they're certainly not as challenging as climate catastrophe if we didn't get off this path. So yeah, we can work this out. But it will take a lot of work. And it will take a lot of, you know, people in different walks of life trying to figure out how to make their work uh, both more efficient and and then easier to, um, to, to promote using clean energy. Mm, fantastic. Very hopeful message. I'm also interested to know um, why you think in recent times we've moved from talking about environmental justice to climate justice in terms of the focus phrase. Um, with a planet degrading day by day, uh, you know, we're clearing forests, we're mining landscapes, releasing too much carbon, on and on we go. Um, is it because we feel it's our best hope for cut through to change the message to being all about the climate? Because I, and, and I'll just share one little thought. I'm a big fan of um, Charles Eisenstein's work uh, and regenerative agriculture, for example, as well. And, uh, and I just feel like healing landscapes is such a huge part of the conversation that we're just not yet having enough cut through with. Um, and I, I feel like if we make it all about energy, we miss some of the healing of right down to community levels by making environments healthier again, that will, of course, contribute hugely to uh, the healing of our planet overall. Mm -hmm. hmm. You know, I, th I think that's a really interesting question, and, and particularly given my actual history with this issue, because after I wrote Coal, 
I worked with a lot of nonprofit groups trying to reduce our coal consumption and put in place climate protection laws and whatnot. And mainly I worked with the Union of Concerned Scientists and, and that was in part because they, they did remain focused on the climate issue throughout. But in many of those years, what happened was we actually um, were, were being advised, well, we, would, we were in coalition with other nonprofit groups, a lot of other environmental groups. And it would be common then for people to hire uh, public relations folks, communications experts who would do focus groups, and they would come back and tell us climate change is a losing issue. Uh, if you want to get people who are con concerned about environmental issues, don't talk about climate change. It is too big, it is too distant, uh, it's too scary. Uh, just so talk about something else. If you're trying to get people to close a coal plant, talk about the mercury, which was, of course, a very legitimate thing to talk about. Or if you're trying to get them to promote clean energy, talk about the clean jobs, which was also a very legitimate thing to, to talk about. But don't talk so much about climate change. Um, so I think, frankly, a lot of groups really did kind of ignore this issue and, and prevented us prevented the public from understanding just how serious the problem was. And, and I think what you're actually seeing now is kind of a belated recognition that this really is a very scary, very urgent problem. And, and part of that, of course, comes from the Paris Agreement and the work of the IPCC telling us now that if we want to limit warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade, which is the, the, the more ambitious goal, or even two degrees, which is the less ambitious range of the goal, we're talking about making dramatic cuts and, and getting to net zero emissions. And, and uh, so, so suddenly this isn't such a distant thing. This is a, a challenge of, of cutting our emissions in half and basically rebuilding much of our energy infrastructure in 10 years and then, and then trying to cut them down to zero, net zero in, in another 20 years. Uh, and, and I think the youth movement has, has quite uh, rightly picked this up and expressed their outrage that we've spent 30 years doing so little uh, about this topic. Um, so, so I think that's really kind of what is driving this. Now, uh, you know, as far as a lot of the other issues about landscapes, I think that preserving them and, and restoring them is going to be part of the climate protection. So uh, hopefully those issues don't get ignored, but, but actually can get some more attention. Mm, absolutely. I feel like uh, we need lots of eggs in lots of baskets <laughs> instead of everything focused in one area. And then what if we fail in that area and we haven't worked on anything else? Well, um, that would be a problem. Yeah, exactly. So Industrial Strength Denial is the title of your new book. And I love this because as someone who had to quit gluten, funnily enough, 16, 17 years ago now, it sent me down the path of looking at ingredient lists for the first time in my 28 years at that time. And not only was I finding the gluten that I had to avoid and going, wow, basically I can't eat any packaged foods, but I was also finding all of these synthetic preservatives, strange things that I didn't even know what they were, how they were made. And it sent me down a bit of an Erin Brockovich, uh, Barbara Freeze type path <laughs> of like just investigating everything which uncovered issues in the food system, which uncovered 
factory farming, which uncovered then my going into items around the home and personal care and finding lead in lipsticks and on and on I went until I started Lotox Life um, a decade ago. And uh, I feel like it can be a whirlwind of a journey to realize that things are not as they seem and there is some serious denial, uh, both funded by money and uh, greed um, in the background. And uh, it, it, I mean, a lot of us would traditionally think, oh, that's all, you know, poppycock, it's conspiracies, etc. But this is real. And this is happening because everyone has to answer to a share price. And uh, everyone's terrified of the idea of um, losing their 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 worth, their wealth, everything they've built, and all of a sudden the money starts to be more important than the truth and justice. And we've seen this play out in history for centuries, right? So, how, when you come to writing a book like this, do you narrow things down <laughs> to be able to write this book? And what do you choose to put in there? Mm. Right. Well, you know, for me, it started with climate denial, of course, and, and having cross-examined the coal industry witnesses and then seeing that denial spread through society in the subsequent years, seeing it um, being advanced by uh, these, these uh, free market groups that are, that are basically opposed to all government regulation and seeing it get into the right wing of our political spectrum here and then take over our Republican Party and spread on. And, and so I started thinking of this as just a very powerful social phenomenon. And I wondered how else it had affected humanity in the past and how far from reality it had taken us and, and how other industries had uh, responded when confronted with this evidence. And, and then, of course, how society had, had, you know, pushed back and overcome the denial if it did. So I, I was looking for cases that I thought would help me answer that question. And, and I was also just interested in the actual denials and to the extent I could figure it out, the motivations for those denials. And obviously, money is a very big one. I think also understanding through lots of social psychology. Um, but, but to get to your question about how do you pick, you know, it was hard. I, I kind of stumbled around for a long time and, and realized how many industries had, had confronted this issue. Um, and ultimately, I, I kind of settled on three different sort of criteria by which I would, I would uh, filter out the, the different industries. One was that I wanted there to be really powerful evidence that the, the danger in question was really a danger so that it wasn't like just reasonable minds differing about, about science because there has to be a debate and that's perfectly normal and perfectly fine. It's getting, but I wanted cases where we were really beyond a reasonable doubt. So there was something to try to explain other than people just disagreed. So, and then another one was, I was looking for cases, as with climate change, that just had a major, major impact, either in terms of threatening a, a global environmental catastrophe, or really harming millions of people. There was one chapter that, where the product only harmed thousands of people, but, but mostly these are products that are harming millions of people. Um, and I was also very interested in 
uh, campaigns that were public and, and lasted a long time because, first of all, that gave me lots of source material to, to work with, um, but also because when you're debating these things in public, you, you don't just influence how the public feels about your particular product or practice. Uh, the way these debates play out, you, or at least have played out, uh, the industry's influenced how the public felt about science and about government and about expertise and, and really influenced um, levels of social trust, basically greatly diminished levels of social trust. And uh, so, so that's, those were the kinds of industry campaigns I was looking for. And uh, on that point of social trust, it's really, um, you must find right now really interesting with COVID-19. Oh, absolutely. So much confusion. I mean, you know, I wouldn't write a chapter about COVID-19 yet. I would wait, you know, a few years until I had all the science absolutely clear because right now, of course, this is a novel coronavirus and it poses novel questions and there really is a lot of confusion. Um, on the other hand, there are certain things we know and, and a lot of evidence that supports it, and yet there are things that many, many people want to deny. I mean, honestly, we all sort of want to, to deny that this is happening because it's so, um, well, ranging from incredibly inconvenient to terrifying. Um, but, uh, you know, it does, it does require us to be sort of clear-eyed and scientific, and, and that's just really hard to be uh, in a society where science has become such a divisive point. Yeah, so let's talk about that. How does science become divisive? I mean, the thing I think people often um, miss is the fact that science is never stagnant. And it is an ever-evolving art of questioning, reasoning, and coming to new uh, new um, conclusions on things uh, until that conclusion then changes when new things come to light. And so it is always evolving. How? Why do you think we've gotten so stuck in the mud with science, trying to either prove things right, wrong, you're in your camp, you're in my camp? It just seems like such a mess when we then try to navigate some of these issues. It, it, it is a mess. And partly I think it is because somehow the public came to believe that science delivered certainty, that science, you know, that things were either proven or not proven. And when they find out there's something that's disputed, they you know, they kind of want to tune out, non-scientists do, until all the scientists agree and then they'll take it seriously. Um, which of course isn't true, as you were saying, it's constantly evolving and, it, and, and it, our certainty increases by little gradations until we know something quite a lot. There will still be questions, but that doesn't mean we don't have incredibly useful information. Um, but, but because we're not necessarily, and I, and I mean we, the, the non-scientific consuming public, we're not necessarily that savvy about science and about the process for weeding out the bad science from the good. Um, we're, we're left sort of insecure and vulnerable to people who want to manipulate. And, and of course, I'm talking here about industrial strength denial in the industries that want to confuse the public so that the government won't regulate them. And that turns out to be just incredibly easy to do because they don't need to persuade people that their product is safe. 
all they need to do is persuade people that there is some doubt. And, and, and the way you persuade people to be doubtful is to get them to distrust what they're hearing from the government or from mainstream science. Uh, and then folks are, are just sort of paralyzed and don't know what to do. And, and since it takes a lot of momentum to pass a law to regulate an industry, uh, that, that paralysis means the laws don't get passed and the status quo continues. Mm, 100%. And this is how we still have carcinogens in sunscreen. Exactly. <laughs> it's just crazy. Uh, you would think that that would have been a really easy one to pass. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> uh, so, okay, let's talk about, um, let's talk about the chapter on radium uh, because uh, this this was a really interesting one. It used to be used in consumer products and even sold in a lot of cures. Yeah, let's oh, talk about that. Jeez, the, the radium chapter is is one that just astonished me because I knew so little about it. I mean, the, in radium, of course, is this incredibly radioactive element, and it was first discovered by uh, Marie Curie and, and Pierre Curie in, in the late 1800s, and, and they didn't really understand radioactivity, obviously, the way we do today, and, and there was a lot of mystique and mystery around this element. And the scientists learned one thing about it pretty quickly was that if you if you put a tiny bit of it into a vial and stuck it in your pocket and carried it around for a little while, uh, a few days later, there would be a burn on your skin under your clothes where you had been near that radium. And, and we're talking about infinitesimal quantities here, but it was still enough to burn your flesh. So they that's really about the one thing they knew about it that was that it was going to burn your flesh and they thought well how can we use it and they thought well we what what kind of flesh do we need to kill and they thought well we can we can use this to treat uh, cancerous tumors that was actually very logical and it was the you know like the radioactive the radiation treatments that we use today for for cancer but then things got really crazy and and particularly in the United States in Europe they the government sort of controlled the different governments sort of controlled radium supplies because they wanted to make sure there was enough around for cancer treatment in the United States uh, the the government tried to do that but this new corporation that had just started to um, launch the US radium industry called called standard chemical uh, they managed to prevent that from happening they they basically said hey if, if the government takes over the radium because it's radioactive you know pretty much the whole world is radioactive they'll take over everything where will it stop oh, goodness so they basically kept the government out of it and they and and uh, th this man in particular named Joe Flannery launched this company called Standard Chemical and pretty soon they were the biggest radium refiners in the world and his he said his goal was to uh, cure cancer but of course if you're going to just use it to, to kill cancerous tumors and, and by the way the way that was used was it would just be put in a little vial positioned somewhere near the tumor and then taken away and you could reuse the same radium over and over again that mm, is not goodness. a profitable business model though because <laughs> no. you're not going to sell much radium right yeah. so he suddenly looks for how how can i sell a lot more and obviously that meant uh using it for a lot of other diseases and and here's the brilliant part consuming it internally so yeah, I mean, it was amazing because, you know, this stuff was so mysterious and so potent. People like Thomas Edison said, I am not going to experiment with it. I don't want to monkey with it. I am afraid of radium. 
this guy, he actually was a former mortician and then he'd become sort of an industrialist and kind of a snake oil salesman. And, but he wasn't a scientist, he wasn't a doctor, but he, he was happy to plunge ahead. His company opened up a free radium clinic in oh Pittsburgh. In uh, yeah, 1913, where you could go and for free, they would inject you with radium or you could drink radium or you could breathe radioactive gases. And they, they you know, handled thousands of patients. And it wasn't people who had serious diseases necessarily. It was everything from, you know, arthritis to high blood pressure to constipation to insanity. There was a lot of, a lot of talk about trying to cure insanity with conditions like anemia, who, even though radium, in fact, causes anemia. So this was pretty astonishing. Um, and yeah, and, and, and because he wanted to really spread the word, he launched his own medical journal and had his doctors write this all up and send those journals out to all the the doctors in the country and pretty soon you really did have this health fad and other producers got involved and they started creating all of these products that they would sell to people and you could drink radium drinks and take radium pills and you could soak in radium in the bathtub and you could have radium in your toothpaste and you could they they just had almost every possible means of getting radium into the body uh they that's what they pursued and and in fact they really kind of targeted targeted people who had conditions that they might have been embarrassed to talk about. One of them was male sexual dysfunction. And so one of the products that they sold was a rectal suppository that was radioactive, contained radium. And this was then supposed to, to help the poor, as the, as the ads put it, weak, discouraged men perform the duties of a real man. Oh, my and, goodness. Uh, and that is exactly what you were talking about earlier about preying on vulnerable people. Exactly. To people who are, who are kind of desperate yeah. Yeah, and, and who don't want to, you know, and if, and if it doesn't work, they're not likely to sue you. Um, so, so I think that basically you find the, the folks that you can most who feel desperate, who feel insecure, and who aren't going to push back if your product doesn't work or if it hurts them. Nasty stuff. And so where does that story end up? How did you (laughs) unfold? Well, what happened with this particular health fad was that there was one particular very wealthy industrialist who uh, liked to drink radium potions, and he had enough money to effectively poison himself much more thoroughly than uh, people without so much money could. He, He apparently gave this to his racehorse, and he would send crates of it to his friends, one of whom died. I mean, this was this was, uh, he was really into these radium drinks. And this was during the 1920s. And then around 19, well, 30, I think around 1930, he started getting very sick. And basically what was going on was the radium was lodging in his bones and killing them. And his bones started to decay and his, especially his jaw bones, for whatever reason, radium tends to really affect the the bones of the face, the teeth, the jaws. So he ended up losing, I think, all but two teeth. He had most of his upper and lower jaw removed. It was quite a gruesome death. And when he did finally die, and I think it was 1932, it was in the headlines and it was a very big deal. And it brought enough attention to this issue. And 
also the federal government was starting to get involved to try to put pressure on, on uh, these products. And finally, I think mainly demand just dried up because people started to realize that this wasn't healthy stuff after all. Mm. And gosh, it, I mean, <laughs> the, as you were telling that story, it made me think we are still here. We still have to wait for super rich people to have something happen <laughs> wrong to them before anyone pays any attention to the toxic crap going on out there. Well, I think and, of and the Flint, Michigan water incident that yeah. is still happening, you know. Well, and, and, and there was another side part of this radium story, which was that a lot of uh, poor young women who worked in uh, these studios where they where they would paint radium paint onto watch dials. So those watches would glow in the dark. This was a big industry. And the women were trained to use their paintbrushes to, to make nice little points with their lips. So they ended up consuming lots of radium. Many of them uh, got very sick and died. And this was also in the headlines. But for whatever reason, and that happened before this other man died, the industrialist died. The fact that these young women died from workplace exposure to radium wasn't enough to make the health fad go away. It was only when this rich man who had been drinking the radium died that it suddenly was no longer uh, very popular. Wow. It says a lot, doesn't it? Mm. Oh, okay. <laughs> you have, uh, <laughs> um, I'm just going to refrain. It, it, like, it, it's just so sad, isn't it? It really is just so sad that. There, there's plenty to be sad about and, and to be angry about. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I do try in this book to, to also talk about in each chapter the what went right, you know, and the people who finally stood up to these corporations and brought the evidence forward and, and made the changes happen. Mm. Um, but, but it is a sad part of the story that we have to keep making the changes happen. Absolutely. And, and so um, why do you think governments don't see the logic? Because European governments, most governments in Europe have through the European Union, they have the precautionary principle. It is about, you know, just waiting something out, looking at the sites before any kind of mass rollouts. And they're much more prudent than the Australian and American governments seem to be when it comes to chemical regulation. Why do you think industry has such a hold over government in our two countries? Well, in, in my country, I would say it has a lot to do with the way our campaigns work and how much campaign money is required and how difficult it is to get things through. I mean, our, our government was largely designed to be inefficient because our founders were worried about power. We're worried about government power, not about corporate power, because there really were not powerful there corporations. There wasn't any. Yeah. Yeah. They were worried about government power. So they really made it hard to pass laws and they made it hard to to, well, to do much of anything as a government, you have to have an awful lot of momentum to get things through. Um, I mean, I would point out that there is a difference from one period to another where uh, sometimes corporations have a lot of power um, and sometimes they have a little bit less power. <laughs> They're never really powerless, but there have been eras in you know, the last century or so where you've seen the public and the government push back and then eras where the pendulum swings in favor of, of a lot of government, of, of a lot of corporate power. 
and and so right now certainly in the united states corporations have a lot of power i am hopeful that that pendulum could be swinging back there is certainly tremendous frustration here with corporate power over our democracy uh and and so i think you know certainly it's time for it to, to be swinging back um it's harder for me to know uh, you know, obviously what's going on in Australia, but I know you have a very powerful coal industry and I know that you have climate denial that has taken root there as well. Um, so I, I do think that the, the fact that this moment in time, our main challenge is to address the climate crisis, which is goring the ox of, you know, the fossil fuel industry, which if you sort of pull them all together, makes it kind of the most powerful industry in the world. Um, and, and I think that is the background against which a lot of these other disputes are playing out. Mm, absolutely. Um, and so I want to talk about the leaded gasoline because I remember leaded versus unleaded when I was a kid. Um, I think we, I don't think we ever had a leaded car in my memory. Maybe mum and dad did obviously, but uh, I do remember seeing the option at the petrol station and, um, and, how experts obviously warned back in the 1920s that it was dangerous to put lead in the fuel supply. That's a lot of denial for a lot of decades. What that is a lot of denial. <laughs> what I mean, it, was going on there? What happened was uh, back in the 1920s, GM wanted to make more powerful cars. And one of the problems was that uh, cars had a knock, the engines would knock. Um, if, and, and the solution to this knocking was to put lead in the, the gasoline. This was discovered by an engineer at GM and, and everybody was incredibly excited and, and um, they didn't put in pure lead, they put in this very toxic chemical called tetraethyl lead. But basically lead was introduced into the fuel supply and the uh, public health authorities at the time in academia and to some extent in government were horrified because it had been known, you know, since antiquity that lead is poisonous and that it accumulates. And, and there's a quote I have in the book from a Greek physician, I think from 2000 years ago that where he warns that, you know, lead makes the mind give way. People understood it affected the brain and, and, and that it built up. So there's this letter from the U.S. Surgeon General. Oh, I've just lost you. Um, I just lost you. So if you could say again, so there's this letter from the Surgeon General. Okay. Uh, so there's this letter from the Surgeon General and, and he writes to this engineer at GM and says, wait a minute, is this really such a good idea? This is a known toxin and it builds up. Maybe we shouldn't put it in the fuel supply. And the engineer wrote back and said, yeah, you know, we haven't really done any research, but we don't think it'll cause any detectable problems. We don't and think. <laughs> oh, it was very vague. And I mean, ultimately, the, the Surgeon General did have a, a conference where the industry showed up and the public health people showed up and they kind of talked about this for one day. And the industry said, look, we need this for progress. This is all about technological progress. This is the 1920s and, and, and you know, America is, is gaining power and this is important to maintain our 
you know, place among nations. And they said, don't worry, because we have doctors in charge here and we're paying attention to this issue. And if we find any problem, we will stop putting lead in the gasoline. And the Surgeon General, they had a committee, the committee writes a report. The report says, well, we don't know of any problem now, but it's really important that we track the long-term impact of this here. And, <laughs> but then the government didn't track it. And the only people who tracked it uh, was the industry. And they really dominated this. And, and so for 40 years, the main guy uh, in charge of this worked, he, he ostensibly worked in academia, but he also worked for the ethyl company that made this product. And uh, he was the same one in the 1920s who said, don't worry, it's not going to be a problem. We're watching. He was the one who was watching for 40 years. And the theory that he came up with and convinced the world of was that, hey, lead is everywhere in the environment. It's a natural part of the environment. And so it is a natural part of our bodies. Yes, it's in our blood, but that's fine. And unless you get over... Uh, 80 micrograms per deciliter of blood. And I mention this number because now we have discovered neurological damage in children below five micrograms. So it gives you an idea of how far off he was. Um, but he persuaded the world that this was true until other scientists coming at it from a completely different direction, including a, a geochemist named Claire Patterson, he was just, just trying to figure out how old the earth was. And to do that, he needed to measure lead levels. And that got him involved in looking at how much lead there is in the environment. And he realized, no, lead isn't a natural part of our environment, certainly not scattered around the surface like that. Uh, if you go back far enough, you look at the ice core samples, you go back in time and you realize, no, we put the lead here in our gasoline. And, and that really prompted a complete uh, change in how we started looking at it. At the same time, pediatricians and others were pointing out that there were subtle neurological damage in children at very low blood lead levels. And so basically entire generations of children were subjected to this chronic low level poisoning that we now know affected their, I should say, my IQ. I mean, I was part of the generation that was exposed to dangerous levels. Um, our, our attention spans, our ability to succeed in school, it affected you know, the likelihood that you will commit a crime, end up in trouble with the law. It may have even affected our crime rates. Uh, and, and now we um, are finding out that it makes adults who had high lead levels as children more likely to have cardiovascular problems. So there are a lot of deaths being traced to that long ago lead exposure. And, and the irony here is <clears throat> not just that the industry in the 20s said, don't worry, we've got this, it's fine. But that in the 60s, when the evidence came out, their reaction was, first of all, it was very tribal criticizing uh, Claire Patterson, Patterson in particular, is calling him ignorant and naive and possibly the passionate supporter of some kind of a cause, some sinister political cause. Um, that's a very common challenge. Absolutely. Um, it's all about discrediting the people who speak out. Yeah, that's very important. And then when the public sentiment turned against them and, and the laws started to turn against them, um, 
the, the lead industry called this a witch hunt. And that's another very common denial we get from a lot of industries and said that those attacking them were liars and hysterics. And mainly then they started focusing on selling more of their product overseas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is exactly what uh, happens, isn't it? As soon as it, it's like uh, triclosan being banned by the US government, I think it was 2000. Uh, 16 uh, towards the end of the Obama era. Um, and then, of course, you just see triclosan turn up everywhere else, everywhere else in the world. <laughs> um, and, and I should say banned in hand wash and body wash, not in all products. But that's when you see it proliferate in the paint industry as an antibacterial and you see it show up everywhere else because they're not going to lose market share. They're just going to have to get creative. It's like Teflon is now in school uniforms in Australia because they can't put it in frying pans. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> we, have a a special, of- we have a special Teflon like tag as if it was a feature on uh, school uniforms because it's like, you know, easy care, no stain kind of situation and oh oh, dear yeah Yeah, it feels kind of like a game of whack-a-mole you know yeah exactly yeah exactly and um okay so why does it take decades to bring these denials down how can we pick up the pace on this stuff do you have any suggestions for us who are constantly concerned at the lack of regulation and the lack of speed with which when we realize something isn't so good for either us or the planet that it, it just takes so many years to actually create change. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why it, it happens so often and lasts so long is that it really works very, very well. You know, I mean, this kind of gets back to that whole question of uh, creating enough doubt to prevent action and that it just turns out to be pretty easy to do that um, especially if you have the resources and and you can hire scientists i mean in almost any scientific field there will be a few scientists who who disagree with the mainstream or who disagree or who are willing to take the industry line and so they don't have to necessarily lie you just have to find the ones you agree and then you amplify their voices and you create the the idea that there's a dispute um, you know, another issue I think is why do the people in these corporations who are generally not evil people, um, I mean, they, evil people may be overrepresented, <laughs> but I think in, in many cases we're just talking about sort of normal people when it comes to other areas of their lives, their, their rationality, their honesty, their social concern. But, but in this context, something happens to them. And, and that is one of the things that I try to address in the book in, in terms of, you know, what, what is it about this barrel that suddenly creates all these bad apples? Um, and among the things I focus on is the fact that nobody really feels fully responsible for what a corporation does, for what harm a corporation causes. And that is, is pretty much by design. I mean, corporations, big ones obviously have divided labor uh, and they have divided management from ownership. If you are a manager, you're worried about your shareholders. And if you think there's an issue that maybe you should do something better for your consumers or for the public or for the environment, uh, and maybe you should admit something, um, but you don't, you don't necessarily feel like that is 
you being personally deceptive and selfish. You feel like you're performing an act of loyalty for your shareholders or for your employees, right? So you've got this different kind of mindset and that's, of course, enforced in part by our limited liability laws. The people who own the corporation are not going to be liable if the corporation hurts people. Uh, and that's a key part of incorporation. It's why corporations can attract so much capital in the first place. Yeah, because um, it lowers the risk for anyone who invests, right? Exactly. Yeah, there was this quote from the early 1900s in something called the Cynics Dictionary that defines a corporation as an ingenious device for or uh, gaining individual profit without individual responsibility. I think that was how it was phrased. And Is and this where all care and no responsibility comes from? I, uh, I don't know. I, maybe <laughs> so. Um, but so, so there are things built into the structure of the corporation. And the bigger it gets, the harder it is for anybody to feel personally responsible. There's also the, just the anonymity of it. There's, and then you add on top of that the ideology of the marketplace and this. Oh, I've lost you again. Oh, I wonder I'm what's going on. Yeah, strange. Can you just say, and then you add on top of that again? Okay, sure. Uh, And then you add on top of that the the ideology of the marketplace, which uh, basically suggests that markets will turn the pursuit of personal self-interest into public good and, and, you know, magically by the invisible hand. And and you don't need government to be uh, involved in that process. That is an ideology that is, again, encouraging people not to worry about the social consequences of what their corporation is doing. So, so there are a lot of factors there. Now, you know, you asked, why does this take so long? uh, And, and what can we do to shorten it? And I have to get back to trying to reduce the political power of corporations over our democracy. And that is not going to be easy, mm. um, but it has been done in the past. And I really think it can be done again. Um, thank you for that reassurance. That's <laughs> good. <laughs> and I mean, is this why they all get to stand down and get these huge payouts instead of actually going to jail? Ah, well, yes. I mean, the the only time I really looked into that question was the chapter I wrote about the financial crisis. And the reason that you did not see executives from Wall Street going to jail, for the most part, according to the people who tried to prosecute them or, or thought about prosecuting them, was that they had maintained this sort of plausible deniability at the very top so that they, you know, it it was really very difficult to trace the the... These, these kind of crazy investment products, these deceptive investment products that had been sold and that caused the global financial crisis to the people at the top. And in a way, I kind of see that as kind of like um, our, our own brains in the sense that we try to deny those parts of ourselves that we are not comfortable with, right? We want to maintain think of ourselves as honest and decent folks. And, and so if we've done something wrong, we, we prefer not to really know too much about that. There's this sort of internal denial mechanism that I think humans are, are pretty much born with. It seems as if the corporations have sort of institutionalized that so that especially those, those at the top can deny what is really going on. Mm, gosh. 
There's a lot of work to do. I feel like as parents, one of my favourite things to just make absolutely sure is I raise not only a a kind, uh, strong, respectful boy, but also one that just quickly and unashamedly owns up however uncomfortable it is when you've done something wrong you the truth matters and the truth is what is respected and you own up to it and then you make it right either by cleaning up the spill or giving back the toy that you accidentally took from your friend conveniently or you know all the things and I think if we teach our kids this then they grow up realizing it's actually the more honorable thing to own up to doing something wrong yeah. Well, I, I hope more and more parents do that and that their kids end up running the corporations of the future. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I want to raise a future honorable CEO. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, a couple of questions before we finish. Um, we, where, like where to next on the um with the truth, seeing as so many claim to be telling it these days, what do you have a bit of advice, a blueprint of sorts for us to actually navigate? Because narratives can be so complex that I feel like the post-truth narratives that get constructed are quite alluring because they look like there's so much detail that's gone into building them. It couldn't be untrue, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I find this a really interesting time because you can cherry pick and put together pretty much anything to be true or yeah. so it seems. Well, I, I mean, I think to talk about that in the question of science, I mean, that to me is where I, I end up when I when I ask myself, how do I know I'm not in denial? How do I know I'm not letting my own biases drive me to accept this one fact and not another? Um, I keep coming back to the science and, and to the evidence, and I am not a scientist, which means I cannot figure it out myself. But I've been working sort of, you know, as a science adjacent person for a long time um, and representing science scientists and trying to convey their views to decision makers and to the public long enough that that for me I think it's really important to understand that within the field of science we have already put in place all kinds of uh, mechanisms to protect us from shoddy science and it's a slow and messy process, but it is a process and it is ultimately what makes science self-correcting. If it goes down the wrong path, people make a mistake, people's biases or self-interest get in the way. And among those processes, for example, is peer review. So that's one of the reasons why if somebody's science has not been published in a peer reviewed journal, it needs to be discounted. You need to sort of wait and see if it holds up. It really matters if other scientists can replicate the information. So again, you have to be patient and wait. Um, We've got these, uh, of course, scientific associations in every single field where the scientists talk to each other and have to defend their findings to people who actually understand this. And when we have really big issues like climate change or ozone or tobacco, or smoking dam- uh, dangers, uh, the governments of the world pull together the, the experts and have them collectively assess the data. And it is, again, a slow process. But once 
science makes it through that, you can be confident that it is very strong. Now, uh, you know, again, we're talking about how to speed this up. And I think part of it is if you actually had government devoting a lot more resources to this kind of science. And, I, and you know, there are different kinds of science. There's a the kind of science that helps you invent cool stuff. There's the kind of science that helps you make a lot of profits. But there's also the kind of science that's devoted to trying to, to, to figure out cause and effect and to figure out what we are actually doing to ourselves and to our planet. And that's the kind of science that isn't, you know, the private sector isn't going to take that on because it isn't profitable, but it is the kind of science that's critical to protect the public. And, and so that's why I really do think uh, government spending a lot more money on that is very helpful. And, and I think if, if the public then becomes more aware of the fact that there really are these processes involved within the scientific field and, and involving lots of different players, um, it would help them at least know what they can confidently trust and what they have to put in the category of either not proven yet or, or probably not true. And, and I think that is a way that we can then build some larger trust and, and really act on the science once it really has been through that process. Wonderful. Great, uh, great advice. Um, I want to ask you, and I didn't put this in the questions, so <laughs> I, I wonder whether you will answer for us. Um, maybe it's my like inner fan of watching Law and Order back in the day, but can you think to a court case, uh, um, a, a particular scenario where you thought, you know, you were working into the wee hours of the morning, putting together all the evidence to go after someone in the coal industry, for example, and you thought, this is it, I've got them. <laughs> oh, you know, I think this probably happens to all lawyers, but once you have put your case together, you're so convinced you are right. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it's almost always the case that you're right. Ah, you okay. feel that way because you have marshaled all of your facts. Mm. Um, that said, there are times afterwards where you realize, you know, I was really overlooking one thing or, or another. Where that has never happened is with respect to climate change because uh -huh. that data is so strong and it has just gotten stronger and stronger over the years. Mm, amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, and in closing, what do you think the most powerful thing an individual can do today who wants to drive change and hand a healthier planet down to their kids? What advice do you have? Well, I, I really do tend to look at these things at a, at a social level. I mean, my book is largely about social norms and social changes and, and social pushback to socially created problems. Um, so, I, so I tend to look at it that way. When I think about what individuals can do now, I think it is to get engaged with these social movements. And uh, partly, of course, that is voting. I mean, it seems so simple, but it is just so critical to put in place leaders who actually care about science and are <clears throat> against harmful corporate activity, like good journalists um, and, uh, <coughs> pardon me, good scientists. And, and to the extent that you can support that, I think that's really critical. Um, and, and without sounding too much like a, a single issue person, uh, focusing on climate change is, is really helpful right now because, you know, we are seeing enormous momentum build, but not enough 
to overcome the enormous forces preventing action on this one issue. And, and I think if we can get it over the hump, we can get to, to the point where the, the technology and even the markets, the clean energy markets, uh, can take over themselves. And we don't have to keep pushing and pushing. And, and more of the changes will actually start to happen. Mm, amazing. Thank you, Barbara. What a fascinating uh, discussion. I encourage everybody to go out and get industrial strength denial. Uh, it hit me in a way that economic hitmen hit me about 20 years ago when I read that. Um, and uh, just to realize the many levels, the much effort that occurs to advance particular agendas of industry. And it is not to say all industry is bad and everyone who works in any industry is bad but it is more to start to think about a barometer of truth and justice and find a win-win where a corporation can make great profits for their shareholders without sacrificing human and planetary health. There are businesses showing us this is possible and we just need more like it. So thank you, Barbara, for your important voice in this conversation. Thank you, Alex. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low-Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.